Welcome to the Otherwise Podcast, Season 2. I'm Casey Tigard. I'm your host. I'm an author, pastor, and spiritual director. I appreciate your patience on not having an episode come out recently. I've been doing a bit of travel because this month marks six months since my most recent book, As I Recall, Discovering the Place of Memories in Our Spiritual Life, uh, came out into the world. And so I've been able to lead some retreats and do some teaching and talking about the content in that book. And I would love it if you haven't read it. I would love for you to pick up a copy. And you can do that uh, by checking my website or in the notes to this show. The reason I start with this is not shameless self-promotion, however. It's because the story you're about to hear has a lot to do with memories. And in fact, a lot of what I tried to do in this book is to help us all know that our formation happens in the middle of the places where we are. And a lot of times in our memories, we're carrying some pretty heavy, pretty dark things. And so how do we do the work of formation, of becoming like Jesus in the skin we're in, in the middle of some things that are very difficult? Or, in the words of my guest today, Stephanie Tate, that would call us to live at the crossroads of joy and pain. Stephanie's story is one of those kind of stories, and I believe that's why you will connect well with her. But her story is also very large and somewhat unmanageable. The testimony that she has is of a story that is um, difficult to live with and one that she continues to live with. And some days it's good, and then some days it's challenging. And you will hear all of that from her in her honesty, in her clarity, in her passion, And so I'm excited for you to hear this episode talking about The View from Rock Bottom, which is the new book by our guest, Stephanie Tate. Stephanie, thank you for being a part of the show today in your your self-made, home-crafted, soundproof (laughs) box. This is fantastic. What a great place to start from. So... (laughs) It's kind of uh, roasting hot in here, surrounded by all this mattress foam and styrofoam, but at least it's not echoing anymore. So It may, in fact, be the shortest otherwise podcast interview ever, because you may <laughs> melt in the middle of it. So, <laughs> Well, again, thank you for being a part of this. and, and being, Thank you for having me. Being willing to tell your, your story, and we'll, which we're going to get into. But um, I always start the same place with uh, people on the show. I always start with a question about wisdom. And if you had to begin to define the word wisdom, where would you start? So I love this question because if you had asked me this question five, 10 years ago, I would have had a very different answer. It would have focused primarily on the way you think and very internal sort of ideas of wisdom. Uh, but I went through a process a couple years ago in which I found out that my birth heritage, I'm adopted, uh, I'm actually Jewish culturally. I come from a Jewish family and I started exploring a lot about the Jewish faith and Jewish culture, uh, just to try and figure out what that looks like for me as a white Christian woman how do I live that out? And, you know, I'm not going to convert. I've pretty much come to that decision, but what elements of, of Jewish faith and Jewish culture can I pick up as a Jewish person? And, and one of the things I learned when I was studying Judaism with our local rabbi was this idea that in the Jewish culture, wisdom is a lot less about your internal thought processes the way you behave to act those out. 
So the way my rabbi described it was that wisdom, a better synonym in English for the way that the Jewish texts talk about wisdom would be integrity because it's less about why you make the decisions you make or what knowledge base you're basing those decisions on, which is all very internal and in your head, and more what sort of character traits and actions do we see in you acting those things out? How do you take your inward beliefs and walk them out on a day-to-day basis? So when you see books like Proverbs, or uh, I talked in my book about the book of James in the Bible that are often called wisdom texts from the Jewish uh, faith, they're not talking about, here's some really nice tidbits that can help frame the way you think. They're talking about, here's some ways that you can behave. Here's some ways to act out your integrity on a day-to-day basis in a way that's evident to other people and not just inside your head. And that really resonated with me a lot. That, I don't know, I really latched onto the idea of wisdom for me is more about how I act out my faith in ways that people can see and less about my own internal thought processes, if that makes sense. Wisdom, wisdom is a very practical Yeah. Thing. And that's been consistent over the years as I've talked to people about wisdom. There's There's been this how you live it out. I do love what an intriguing thing to have this sort of brand new family heritage that just mm. just happens to have a religious implication to it. You know, I in college, I found out that I was Irish. It really didn't change my it didn't change any of my theological or philosophical foundations. But this is a, a, a big change. Did you feel like you wanted to embrace it more? How did you, how did you, how did you take that into your life as a Christian? How did you take that into your life? It's interesting because at first it felt like this is a huge piece of information that had been missing from my life for years. And I've always been very aware of the fact that I didn't know what my cultural background was, what my ethnic background was. It's complicated because not only am I adopted, but my birth mother was adopted. And that's what really threw everything in sort of a recordless pit of, we don't know, like your guess is as good as ours. And so I've always craved that piece of identity. I think it's normal to wanna know where you came from and and want to understand what makes you you. When I found out specifically that on the maternal side, uh, I have this long, rich history of incredibly Orthodox Jewish families that can trace their roots all the way back to the 12 tribes. We're talking very serious. We only marry other Jews. They were very serious about this. Uh, And oddly enough, on my father's side, then it's all Irish. So I guess we have that in common. (laughs) But uh, I, I, I don't know what it was it didn't really feel new, this information. It it felt strangely like coming home. It it felt sort of like something in my brain clicked and said, that makes sense. That feels right. Like some part of me has always known what my brain didn't know. That sounds crazy, but I've always been unusually drawn to Jewish faith, Jewish culture, uh, stories about Jewish people. There's something that's always drawn me in there. So it didn't, I don't want to say it hasn't been hard to figure out how to incorporate that identity because it is complicated. It's very complicated by the fact that Jewish identity is both, uh, you know, elements of an ethnic identity and a religious faith. And that makes it extra complex. 
But in a way, it wasn't hard because it just, I don't know, it felt right. It felt like I've always known on some level. It felt like coming home. I think our bodies, I think our bodies and our genetic code, I think there is a knowledge. It has an, it has a knowledge of its own. And yeah. we don't, it's not one that we listen to because we have such a defined definition of what knowledge is. Like it's the, it's the stuff I take in. It's what I learn instead of saying there's a native knowledge that you, mm. you're talking about your body knowing that or your body, mind and genes and your whole self knowing that this has been part of the story the whole time. I find that fascinating just because obviously the story that you've presented in your book and the the primary story that you talk about when it comes to your own life is a is very much a physical embodied mm. story which is the Christian story as well you know we the Christian story is filled with incarnation and incarnation is in flesh being a person with a body and what that means uh to I think the best place I found to start thinking about your story was you call it in the book a present tense testimony. Mm-hmm. Uh, I that, use that phrase a lot. That, <laughs> people, that comes up a lot for me. Yeah, that people talk to you about uh, not telling this until the end when you knew things were fine. Mm-hmm. Ha- unpack that a bit. What is it? What is this present tense testimony that you're you're carrying around these days? So I think growing up in a very traditional sort of conservative evangelical culture and church, uh, testimonies were always presented as these very past tense accounts. Uh, It's very, I used to call it sitcom syndrome, right? Like we have these 30 minute little chunks in which things are going to go wrong and there's going to be some sort of issue for the protagonist. But you know that by the end of the 30 minutes, like all the kids are going to be sitting on the bed and Danny Tanner is going to, you know, hug and the the music's going to play and it's all going to be solved. And that is a completely separate chunk from whatever happens in the 30 minutes next week, right? It's all compartmentalized episode to episode. I feel like I grew up in a culture where testimonies were handled much in the same way. This is this thing that happened to me in the past, but Jesus, so now it's all okay. And here's how it worked out. And we put a bow on it. And that's that chunk of my life that has nothing to do with my life now. That's, you know, compartmentalized bow on it, the end moving on. So when you are chronically ill, in my case, for well over a decade and the healing doesn't come, and the pretty bow on top doesn't come, and there's not a logical cutoff point to compartmentalize it away and say, yeah, that's that thing that happens to me, when it's consistently ongoing, you're left sort of wondering, where's the testimony in this? Where's, where's my story? When do I get to have a story to share? And eventually I had to come to a place where I recognized that part of the reason I think the church so often struggles with how to grapple with suffering and pain and grief and lament is because we don't have a context for these present tense testimonies. We, without meaning to, we've often told people a story that essentially says, this is how we know God is faithful. We know he's faithful because he shows up and heals somebody or because they get the miracle baby or because the check shows up that pays the bill or that's how we know he's faithful. And so when that doesn't happen, you're left wondering, does that mean he's not faithful? Does that mean he's not present in this? What does that mean for me? And if more of us could find ways to share our 
present tense testimonies and create that context in church spaces to say, you know, I don't know why God's doing this. I don't know why this is happening. I, I don't know what the quote unquote point of this is. I don't see a, a perfect lesson. This isn't a story I cannot believe my publisher let me keep this in, but in my introduction, I joked that quite sarcastically, this isn't a story where I'm like, oh, I had seven miscarriages because I met seven orphans and we adopted them all. Like, this isn't going to be that book because we have enough of those testimonies and we need to hear more present tense stories. We need to hear more people that can say, I don't know the reason for this, but I'm still showing up. I'm still putting one foot in front of the other. This is what it looks like to be a person of faith, even if you don't get all the answers. And I tried to do that with this book, but you know, different people will have different opinions on how successful I was, but that was sort of my main goal in putting the story out there was what does it look like to be a person of faith in the right now? Yeah. Not in the someday when, not someday when he heals me, not someday when the debt's paid off or we get the baby or whatever, but right now in my present tense testimony. So a decade ago, this the story you tell in the book really began probably about a decade ago. What what was the first thing that you remember from so, so so there was a decade, but there was like years before that. So what was the line? When did the line when did you feel like you crossed a, a line in your life and this began this whole journey began? Is there a beginning point I you can find? It was probably around 15, 16 years old when signs first started showing up that something wasn't right. And so we know now it took 15 years to get correctly diagnosed, but we know now that what was wrong was Lyme disease. But at the time we had no idea. All we knew is that I was at one point a very serious ballet dancer. That was going to be my life. I was pretty sure that was the path I was going down. Uh, and more than that, because I came from a very Christianized setting, uh, I saw that as a calling and my purpose and, and it wrapped a lot of identity words around that choice to be a dancer. And I was also very bright. I did well in school. I was pretty advanced uh, uh, in coursework. And all of a sudden I turned this corner out of nowhere right in the middle of high school where I couldn't really function in class correctly anymore. My grades started to dive, uh, but bigger than that, my physical health started to dive. I was exhausted all the time with no explanation. I started getting injured constantly. And by my senior year, by about 17, 18, I had to pull out of dancing entirely because I was so unwell and we had no answers for it. And at the time, because we didn't have any answers and because specifically I was a teenager and a girl, doctors mostly came back with things like, well, of course she doesn't want to get up and go to class. She's a teenager. And when we would come back and say, no, I think it's more than that. She's sleeping 12, 13, 14 hours a night and still tired. Uh, they would come back and say, well, that sounds like depression. That's, you know, teenagers get depressed. And so right from the start, there was this disconnect between what I knew I was feeling in my body and what I was hearing from the medical community, that there was nothing wrong with me, that it was all in my head. And so I think as a teenager, it's sort of, the only way I can explain it is it's almost like I had to split. I was almost split right down the middle of 
it's really hard to have any sense of embodiment and any sense of yourself when you're feeling these very big things and you're being told, but they're not real. They're all in your head. And you can't have that not affect your faith, your personality, your every aspect of your life will be affected by that split. I think anytime we disconnect from our body and what our body is telling us, you'll never be the same person. It's going to affect every aspect of how you think and feel and how you behave. So right around, I don't know, 17, 18 was when I just couldn't be the same person anymore. So there's a formation aspect to that. There was a kind of person that you were becoming, becoming a divided, you're becoming a divided mm-hmm. person, like two people yeah. actually, uh, for different times and different places. You, it's almost like the good dishes and the, and the regular dishes, you bring yeah. out the ones for the special occasions. And how did, how did faith in those early years, how did your faith play into this development or how did it speak to this divided person that you were becoming? Again, I think a lot of it came down to the way I was raised and the sort of specific corner of very conservative evangelicalism that I came up in. So in the beginning, when I got sick, I sort of had this expectation that in order to be a person of faith, I needed to be the physical embodiment of 24-7 Caleb, right? Like just positive, encouraging all the time. Everything had to have an upswing to it. I came charging into my disabilities with this idea that, okay, God is clearly going to show up in some very obvious, visible way. And I will either be a miraculously healed and everyone's going to know his power because I will have proven that I was so faithful and he always shows up for people that are faithful, or there's going to be some other obvious solution to this, right? Like something else will come into my life so that we'll all be able to say, oh, God took dance away because he wanted you to be over here doing this. And it all works out pretty neat bow on that. So for the first few years, even of being sick, I think I consistently pressured myself to put on this brave face and say, I don't know what's wrong, but Jesus, it's okay. I'm totally fine with this because Jesus, just wait, guys, just wait. He's going to do something awesome. And as the years progressed, and I not only didn't get better, but I got exponentially worse and more and more disabled and more and more disillusioned with all of it. uh, I think that fracture only grew between those two sides of having to figure out how to balance this peppy upbeatness with the day-to-day reality that I was in chronic pain every minute of every day, that the things I loved were consistently being taken away from me because I couldn't function. I couldn't keep a job. I couldn't finish my degree. I couldn't do any of the things I wanted to do. And I think we all, like for me, rock bottom, which, you know, the book, my book's called The View from Rock Bottom. And I think for me, rock bottom was getting to that place where I couldn't balance those two halves anymore. I was going to have to pick. There was going to have to be a come to Jesus moment where I said either A, this is how I'm really feeling and I'm not okay with it. I'm not. And it's okay to not be okay with it. Or I was going to have to go all in and figure out how to just stop caring about my reality of my life and essentially go into a cult brain of 
it's okay. I've just decided I don't care about anything. Whatever Jesus wants, that's cool. I'm just going to disconnect from myself entirely and be a zombie. And I chose A. I chose to get very real and say, you know what? I'm done faking it. I'm done putting on the mask. I'm done pretending I'm fine with everything all the time. I'm not fine. And that was the moment that I had to really sit down and ask God, so are we still doing this thing? Like, where are we going from here? Are we still going to be friends? Are we okay? Am I allowed to be real with you? Did I just blow up everything? Am I not a good Christian anymore? Am I not a person of faith? Do we have anywhere to go from here? Not just where do we go, but can we even go anywhere from here? And so in a way, I guess my deconstruction, I feel like sometimes happened to me. It was less sort of, I'm going to question all the things I was raised with and, and re-examine and more, everything blew up around me into a giant pile of rubble. And I had no choice but to face either reconstruction or just diving headfirst into cynicism. There was really nothing left to salvage from before. What's interesting is how it looks like it, it appears to me that we have we have stopped paying we, we pay attention to so many things that God has created. And the one thing that we pay attention to least is what we were talking about earlier, which is the knowledge of our own bodies. Hmm. That somehow what you were feeling couldn't have been what it was. So it split you as a person. But it took you a long time. It took a long time for you to find out what was actually wrong. I mean, in the middle of this faith journey, there's also a not knowing what actually is is happening to your body. How long did it take to find out that this was Lyme disease? So from the time I started getting noticeably sick to the time I first held an actual test result in my hand that confirmed, yes, it is Lyme disease, you're not crazy, was about 15 years. So at 15 years, which is an excruciatingly long time to be living in that dual place of, on the one hand, I knew my body was sending very clear signals that something was not okay. And yet when you hear for 15 years that it's potentially all in your head, uh, when you hear, well, this is maybe just depression. Maybe you're so depressed that it's making you sick. Or when you hear, and this is ugly, but but true, you hear multiple doctors insinuate, maybe you just really like attention. Maybe you're just looking for a way to get loved or keep people from leaving you by, you know, creating this situation where you need them and they feel like they can't leave. When you hear those things for 15 years straight, it doesn't matter how clearly you know on the one hand that you really are sick, it gets in there. It gets in your brain. It makes you doubt yourself. It makes you 
I, I use this term a lot, but I feel like it was medical gaslighting, if you will. It got in my brain and convinced me maybe I was just wrong about everything and I really was just crazy. And, and that'll break you down in ways that are really ugly. And what's hard is then it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy for them, right? Because then you are depressed and then you are anxious and then you are mental health-wise a mess. So they get to come back and point to that. The more you recognize I'm not okay mental health-wise and I need help, the more you run the risk that they say, well, see, we told you it was depression. I'm so glad you've come around and admitted that now. So you're almost left in a place where (laughs) you can't go right either way, right? You can't not tell them that you need help with your mental health and just let yourself fall apart. But you also can't risk telling them you need help with your mental health because they're going to put that down on your file and they will never take you seriously with your physical symptoms again. So I don't don't know. It just 15 years is long enough to really mess with a person's brain. And I'd love to pretend that the reason I got a diagnosis is because I just fought every step of the way for 15 years and I never lost hope. And that just, it, it wouldn't be true. That's just not the reality of how it happened in the present tense at the time. Yeah. So when you grab that diagnosis and all, and, and of course, healthcare is such a nuanced discussion with every person's physiognomy being a little bit different, but for you, when you held that diagnosis, what did it do for you to be able to just have a name Hmm. for what was going on? I think people who haven't been through long-term chronic illness, especially who haven't been through a situation like this where it takes a long time to get diagnosed, they make assumptions on how they would feel in that situation that are kind of just based on nothing. (laughs) And the one I hear the most is that you must have been so relieved to know that you were going to get better. I have to be honest that that thought, the idea that I could potentially get better was way down the list for me in thoughts that came over me when I first held that piece of paper. The one that came right away that I spent the most time sitting in and crying very real tears over was just sort of repeating the idea that I was not crazy, that I had this validation moment of, You see, like there were so many doctors that came to mind visually in that moment, holding that piece of paper that I wanted some way to march into their offices and say, see, like, look at this, look at what it says. I wasn't crazy. I knew it. I knew it. I knew it. That was the biggest gift in me for getting diagnosed. Admittedly, later it comes in waves, the idea of, okay, I have an answer, then we finally know what to treat. Maybe I will get better. And unfortunately, when you leave a bacteria to run rampant in your system for 15 years unchecked, better comes differently than fully healed. Uh, I've had improvement in a lot of areas, but there's some very permanent damage that's just never going to be corrected. So that was less of a positive for me. It was really more the validation of finally having a way to silence all those voices and all those years of gaslighting and say, no, don't lose sight of the fact that you are not crazy. You, you knew. And if anything, it pointed me to listening to my body again, to finally learning how to reconnect those pieces of myself and say, you 
you were right. Your instinct is right. You don't have to distrust yourself forever and ever. You don't have to ignore the signals your body's sending you. You shouldn't go day to day saying, I don't know. Am I hungry? Am I not? Am I, I don't know. I just, I don't listen to my body anymore. That's not healthy. And there was never a reason for it. So if anything, it pointed me towards digging in deep and learning how to reconnect those pieces and say, how do I find embodiment again going forward and learn how to trust myself? So it sounds as if the, the trauma uh, that you went through and the divided self was actually reunited in having, it, it reunited and not in a relieving way, but just in a, just in a very defining way. Like the two halves that you had split up of you, you became two people and you've seemed to be, have become one person again Yeah. out of the suffering. Yeah. Has that, that would be accurate. Has that drawn you? One of the quotes in the book you talk about, you say suffering is one of the universal experiences that ties each of us horizontally to each other and mm-hmm. vertically through Christ. Have you found that you as a united person again connect more with other people, especially now that this story is out and people are coming to you saying, Hey, I feel the same way or I've had the same experience. Um, absolutely. Absolutely. I, uh, there's a chapter later in the book called cover your mirrors, which is based on Jewish traditions actually around sitting Shiva and grief and how Jewish culture handles that. But the heart of the chapter for me was this idea of there's prophecy in Isaiah that talks about uh, when his kingdom comes, what it's going to look like. And there's a phrase about turning swords into plowshares, right? This idea of things that were used for harm being tur- turned into tools for building, for good, for for creating. And I really latched onto that in a very different way in my story in that I wanted to see the things that had been meant for my harm turned into tools for good. And so in a way, writing this book really was one of my swords into plowshares moment of how can I take this 15 year journey of suffering and pain and, uh, you know, disconnection and gaslighting and the whole nine yards and somehow turn it into something that is more than just this bad thing that happened to me. How can I find passion and purpose inside of my pain. And I have to be very careful because when I say purpose, a lot of the times what people hear is reason for, right? That if you're going to find purpose in your pain, that means you're going to have an explanation for why God quote unquote did this to you. And that's not what I mean here. I don't think we're ever guaranteed to get reasons for the bad things that happen in our life. But purpose for me came out in the way that the more I opened up and shared my story and the more I sort of splayed open my personal journals and thoughts and and found a way to walk this new theology of suffering out in a way that other people could participate in it and learn from it, the more the biggest gift I gained was newfound connection with other people that were hurting. And What's so powerful about that for me is that chronic illness and disability can be so isolating. They, when you're effectively trapped at home for days at a time or bedridden, it can be really hard to build meaningful connections. And so in, in another sort of sword in the plowshares moment, 
the thing that I had felt most isolated me and most disconnected me from having meaningful relationships with people outside of my own family had become the very thing that allowed me to find connection and community and a very deep kind of relationship that goes so far beyond surface level. Hey, how are you doing? Let's grab a coffee and talk about what our kids have done this week. But this very meaningful soul tie of sharing your heaviest burdens and walking those out together and saying, I'm literally going to hold space for you in your pain and just sit in that with you. I, I can't imagine a deeper sort of community with people. So it's interesting that the thing I thought was disconnecting me from the world most is now the very thing that provides these very soul weighty relationships with people I never would have expected and people I never would have met otherwise. Do you, do you see yourself now having the ability, the opportunity, and I don't know if you would use this word, but it's kind of a christian word to use, but having the opportunity to lament Hmm. not only for yourself, but also for the sake of others? I have had so many conversations this year around the idea that I think it's frustrating for people like me that the church doesn't really have a lot of tangible practices around lament anymore. We're not a sackcloth and ashes kind of culture. You're not going to show up to church on Sunday covered in ash and rend your clothes and scream and wail on the front steps. And in truth, it's probably not appropriate to do that. But I've found that when, when you go through that sort of identity crisis, if you will, if when you are lacking that embodiment, when you're feeling split into these fractured parts, The thing that I could hold on to in my faith tradition the most were things that were tangible practices, taking communion, et cetera. Uh, I grew up in a culture that very much focused on how you feel, right? Your very personal relationship with Jesus, how you feel during worship, very experiential faith. And I actually had a conversation with someone the other day where I said, you know, it's a lot like marriage in that. I'm sure when you get up on your wedding day, you have a lot of really great feelings about each other. But if you make that the basis of what your marriage relationship is supposed to look like, you absolutely will end up in divorce. And yet spiritually, we do exactly that in modern Christian context. It's very experiential. How did you feel God? How do you feel about him this week? Did you feel moved by the worship? Did you? And yet when you're in those rock bottom places where you don't know where to turn next, You're not going to feel great about God, but you can walk through tangible practice-based faith. You can still take communion. You can still show up. You can still read prayers written by other people, all the things like the Book of Common Prayer. These were not traditions that I came up with in my Baptist upbringing, but these were the things that rooted me back to my faith when the feelings weren't there anymore. So my biggest hope going forward as a church, especially as people read and respond to this book, is that we start asking the question, what would a practice-based faith look like in the context of lament? How do we create tangible spaces to say, there are times that we need to bring our grief to God? And people don't generally disagree with me on that part of the book, that we need to learn how to open up and bear that truth to him and let him in and connect with him in those painful places. The problem is that we don't know what that should look like in practice. 
So if there's any conversation that I would love to see the church have in response to this book is what would that look like in the context of our Sunday services, in the context of our small groups, in the context of the way we meet each other over coffee? What are practice-based faith ways that we can explore this idea of lament and carve out space for our pain and for the pain of people around us. So you have this, the practices, the spiritual practices, the, the traditional practices you're talking about. You also have uh, a set of rituals and routines that you engage in every day as part of your own health or the ways that you engage in so that you can do the life that you mm -hmm. have. So you can be a mom and a, a wife. And how are all those things forming you today? You're, the book is a collation of a period of time. And it's one of those things where like, there's a point at which it's finished. And thankfully so. Like when you're done writing, you're like, whew, thank God that's yes. over. <laughs> Uh, not the story, but the process. Yeah. Uh, but the story now continues with this fixed mm. volume out in space. What What do you see as formational for you now? Oh, that in is these, such a good question. Days? Wow. I'm like chewing on that. Oh, my goodness. <sighs> so I made a very intentional choice with the way I ended the book in that I added an extra chapter on the end that wasn't in the original outline. And for people that haven't read the book, the last chapter takes a complete left turn from the rest of the book before it. And now that I've spent eight whole chapters letting us know that you're not promised the miracle baby or the magic check or the instant healing, I write a chapter about how that doesn't let us off the hook for, from asking for it. I laid bare, again, a very present tense struggle for me in that I recognized that just as much as we need to rebuke that prosperity gospel thinking that gets in there and tells us to name and claim things, we equally need to be wary of going completely to the other side of the pendulum and diving full bore into cynicism. And for me, it was discovering that it was the same root sin, if you will, underneath both ends for me. It was the need to control everything. Whether I was trying to name and claim my way into healing because I needed to control what my future would look like, or whether I had allowed myself to sort of spiritualize my cynicism and say, oh, you know what? I don't ask for healing anymore because I've just accepted that this is God's plan for me and that it's his will that I be sick. And underneath that, was that same root need of, you know what? I just need to control what my future is going to look like. I need to grasp onto something where I can say, I, I'm certain of something. And this time it's me being certain that I'm not going to be healed. So there. And the hardest part of my journey now is trying to intentionally carve out spaces to leave room for tension, to leave room for mystery, but more importantly, to leave room for hope and to rediscover what hope looks like in the context of disability and chronic illness, to recognize that I am not expecting miraculous healing, but I need to figure out what makes me so deeply uncomfortable with asking for it or for seeing other people ask for it or for being in services where people are sharing stories that it did happen to them. That still makes me very uncomfortable. And right now I'm trying to do the work to explore why that is and to find that balance, which 
I think I'll probably be working out for the rest of my life, the tug between those two extremes and trying to find that messy middle of, okay, God, I'm not expecting you to heal me, but can I do the scary thing of humbling myself again and again and again to ask for it anyways? I, I don't, I don't know what that's going to look like. I'd love to tell you that, you know, I'm writing book two and it's all about how to have hope inside. I, I really and truly don't know what it's going to look like. And I think that's good. I think it's healthy. And that's part of why I left this book on a note of, I literally tell a story in the final chapter of here's a time I was at a service where they were asking people to come down and ask for healing. And I had a full on fight with God in the pew where I was like, that's dumb. I'm not doing that. I literally wrote a book on how this is garbage. I would be mortified if I went down there and asked, especially because we all know it's not going to work anyways. And I fought and I wrestled and he won. And I finally go down to the front and ask for healing. And if you haven't gathered, I didn't get it. I didn't get healing. And so I end on this story and I was so scared that my publisher would be like, I don't get it. That what, what is this? <laughs> you just threw away all the goodwill you built up in the last eight chapters with this nonsense story that what is even the point of that? But luckily I have a fantastic editor who gets me and gets my work and said, I love this. And we ultimately decided to end on that note of, you know, if I really believe everything I wrote in these eight chapters before, and it's sort of, I always say, it's a little bit of a Rorschach test for readers. If you really understood what I just said in these eight chapters before, your reaction to that story is going to be very revealing. If you think I didn't get healed because I didn't have enough faith, read the book again. If you thought as you were reading that story, oh my gosh, she's so going to get healing now because look, she's learned the lesson and she wrote the book. And so now it's the right time for her to get healed. Go back and read the book again. If you feel like I shouldn't have included this story because I didn't get the healing, so it's going to discourage people from having hope, go back and read the book again. All of it is sort of this journey of trying to figure out how to balance those two sides. And for me, I'm walking that out on a very day-to-day -day basis going forward. What does it look like to be consistent and remind people that it is okay if I am disabled for the rest of my life, that God is still faithful and that I am meeting him inside of this but also be very wary of releasing myself fully into cynicism. That is a beautiful, beautiful thought. And that's a, that's a really good place to end. <laughs> I think that's a gift. I, that's a gift that people will get from reading your book, but also from hearing you talk about what it's like, what it's been like to be in this journey that you're in. So thank you for sharing that with us. Stephanie Tate is an author and speaker who says she is serving at the crossroads of joy and pain. I hope you enjoyed hearing her perspective, and I hope you'll pick up a copy of her new book, The View from Rock Bottom, wherever you get your books. Also, again, I'd encourage you, if you'd like to read something on how we deal with difficult memories and difficult stories, my book, As I Recall, Discovering the Place of Memories in Our Spiritual Life is available now. And you can get all of that information in the notes to the show. 
Thank you for listening. If you stream on my website, thank you for doing that. If you subscribe via iTunes, thank you for doing that. If you haven't left a rating or a review, uh, could you do that? That would really help me. That would help the show to find some recognition among people who may not have heard it before. But in all that stuff, I hope that you are able to see the view of God from whatever rock bottom you might be occupying at this present moment and to know that you can live with Jesus at the crossroads of joy and pain. Be well, live wisely. Peace, friends.